Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hello, my friends. We have a Another one of those absolutely essential episodes today. This one is a must-listen. It's one that we're, a lot of these concepts we're going to be referring back to in future episodes and uh, just uh, talking about the evolution of subcells and how the brain can be primed in various ways uh, and how we need different strategies at different times in our lives. And I, I know this is something that I talk about a lot in some of these studies that we addressed in this episode i've talked about a lot just in regular conversations and and sometimes on other podcasts and it's just really fascinating stuff i hope that's one of the things that you guys are getting out of this podcast is uh, interesting stuff to talk about when you're at parties or dinners or whatever you know so you don't always have to talk about the weather and and you know everyone wants to feel smart of course but not only that but explaining this stuff to other people is really, really the best way to learn it and kind of solidify it in your mind. You don't really know how well you understand this stuff until you start trying to teach it to others. So I encourage you all to do that. I think um, it will uh, help you learn and make for a more interesting world. So uh, I, I hope you're finding that to be the case. Also, um, I hope that you guys got a chance to have a listen to my new album, My Big Break. I broke my damn feet to make this album, and so <laughs> go and buy it. I, as you know, I, I don't, um, I, I don't sell anything on this show. I, I don't sell ads or. Uh, anything on this show i just got an email the other day someone wanted to um me to be on their network and to um figure out how to monetize my podcast and i told them i have absolutely zero interest in monetizing this podcast um i do however have to pay for it out of pocket and 
that money in my pocket comes from my stand-up. So please support my stand-up uh, when you when you go and, and buy that and tell other people to buy my album. That also means that there's a higher chance that I'm going to come and perform near you because the more popular my album and my stand-up is, the easier it is for me to get booked in a bunch of places and that makes my agent's job much, much easier. So uh, just something to keep in mind. Uh, But with that, let's get started with today's episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. This is day two, uh, episode two here at Arizona State University. I don't usually load myself up this much um, with so many interviews, but I just had a lot of good opportunities. Um, Maybe the most exciting... Uh, don't tell anyone else that I said this, um, because I've actually read uh, both of your books. My guest um, for today is Doug Kenrick, who is an evolutionary social psychologist at Arizona State University. Thank you for joining me, Doug. Good, Good to join you. I am just uh, finishing. I'm on the last chapter of Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life. A uh, little redundant, because isn't sex and murder the meaning <laughs> of life? And I read uh, a few years ago, or whenever it came, when did Rational Animal came, come out? I think out? it was like 2013. So 2013. Not, not, two years ago. Yeah, two years ago. I read it right when it came out. Um, right. And uh, it, it, was, it was one of my favorites. I, I read, um, I was very, very big into, I've gotten into some other stuff um, since, but I, at the time I was strictly focused on evolutionary psychology and biology. And I remember I got your book and I wasn't really expecting to learn a whole lot because I had already been reading a lot of evolutionary psychology and biology. And, uh, I, it was absolutely fantastic. It really got me thinking about things in a lot of different ways. And so I have to recommend this to anyone whether, whether you've read about the subject or you've never read a book on evolutionary biology and psychology, I thought it was very clear, easy to understand, and at the same time, very thought-provoking. Thank um, you. And uh, because one of the things that, uh, that I would say is, is kind of a common theme in your book and, um, and something that's, that's very interesting is this idea that so we talk a lot about um, on my podcast, especially there's there's a lot of this um, behavioral economics that's that's very popular and um, a, a lot of these fun kind of salient studies that uh, um, that you get a laugh out of and everything. So you had this old idea of these um, economists that that thought that we were all these perfectly rational robots that um, that made all of these perfect um, economic decisions all the time. And then here comes these um, behavioral economics, uh, economics people who then uh, point out through a series of studies all of these flaws. And, and here we come to find out that 
what a bunch of idiots we are in the, in the way that we spend money and um, in, in, in the way that we behave and seek out uh, potential partners and, and, um, and relate to people and lie and all of this various other stuff. And then, but your book actually um, kind of brings that in a bit or, or rather looks at things on an even deeper level and and it's, it's kind of uh, the the just as sort of a lot of these things that are seemingly irrational mm -hmm. um these maybe seemingly irrational fears that a robot might not have or something are perfectly logical for um for human beings especially depending on the certain circumstances that we're under at the time um, so could you talk so, a little bit about yeah. that? <laughs> so you've kind of summarized, uh, you know, a good portion of, you know, the argument. The, on the original model, uh, our brain has sort of a very brilliant banker inside. And the model that I like to think of is, uh, is Joseph Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy's father and uh, Robert Kennedy, Ted, the father of all of those uh, famous Kennedy politicians. And this was a guy who was the ultimate rational economic man. He made a series of decisions in his life that were just, that were carefully thought out and it resulted in tremendous benefits when he was a very young man. He was 25 years old. He was the president of a bank in Boston after getting his degree in finance from Harvard. <laughs> And his father was a bartender, a successful bartender. I'm, but, I'm 34, <laughs> and I don't have a savings account. Right, yeah. so he was ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, he was bit. ahead of everybody at that time. Because um, the average man at that time made $1,000 a year. And uh, his goal, when the, the Boston Globe, I think, interviewed him and said, well, what are, you, what are your goals now? You're 25, you're ready to become the youngest uh, bank president in American history. He said, I want to become a millionaire by the time I'm 30, which doesn't sound like a lot today. But it, it was a lot then. It was a lot. You know, it was more than, than lots and lots and lots of men made in their whole lifetime all added up. Yeah, this wasn't any Joe Schmo can get a spot on who wants to marry a millionaire no, or whatever because right. you, you have a big mortgage on your house or something. Yes, there were not that many millionaires then. You know, <laughs> houses were cheap. Uh, income was low. <clears throat> so he wanted to be a millionaire by 30, and he made it. Not only did he make it, uh, you know, he went on to trade stocks on Wall Street and make a ton of money and then get out just before the market crashed. He pulled all of his money out. He went out to Hollywood. He helped start MGM uh, with, you know, dozens of millions of dollars gathered together to start Metro Goldwyn Mayer. And that became very successful. And uh, then he, when he got older, he became an ambassador to England, I believe. And in his personal life, he was also this perfectly rational guy who always made decisions that were self-serving and uh, kind of, you know, wise at some level. He was having an affair with a beautiful actress, Gloria Swanson, who was one of the most famous of the silent stars. And he had, she was working on a movie and it went way over budget. And he managed to split up with her and leave her holding the check. Uh, so the, uh, perfectly rational. Perfectly rational. Yes, rational guy. He did everything for <laughs> self-interest. And, you know, he then decided he wanted to have uh, one of his kids become president of the United States, which he didn't have really a shot at because there were some shady connections in the past. He'd been trading uh, during Prohibition. Some of the way he made money was, you know, bringing maybe alcohol across the border with the help of some mafia guys. Yeah. Um, so he had a little bit of a shady history back there. But he thought he'd get his son, one of the, he thought he'd get his oldest son, 
who was Joseph Jr. to be president of the United States. So that's, he's sort of the exemplar, you know, the kind of poster child for the traditional rational economic man model. Then along come the behavior economists who do all of these studies showing that we make a lot of dumb decisions. Uh, did you interview Dan Ariely? Yes, uh, I did. So, so he's a star of that yeah, you know, right. point. Okay. People doing kind of, you know, making kind of decisions that don't seem to make sense. You know, if I hear, if you ask me my birth date and it's a high number, I'll pay more for a bottle of wine. Okay. Yeah. Um, if, you know, he does this with, with this one crazy study where people are, guys are asked to make judgments about whether they would rape a woman. Uh, while they're masturbating or not. So it's yeah, this yeah, kind of, and then finds that people make stupid decisions, you know, sexual when they arousal. Have an erection. Which, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. Which we kind of, that makes sense, right? <laughs> um, but uh, so there's a whole bunch of that kind of dumb decisions people make. And that's the story that we got from psychologists. I mean, Ariely was trained by, you know, famous psychologists. Right. Dan, you know, Kahneman, I believe, was one of his teachers. And yep. Kahneman Tversky won a Nobel Prize uh, for this work. And they have, like, Thinking Fast and Slow, which was a pretty popular yes. book. And yes. Uh, and so people love that view. We like to think of how, you know, I teach social psychology, and we, we talk a lot about cognitive biases. You know, there's hundreds and hundreds of, pop, of cognitive biases that we've, we've managed to dig up. And we tell the students, you know, well, here's how you're dumb in this way, and here's how you're dumb <laughs> yeah. in that way. You know? So people are dumb. We all get, like to laugh at ourselves. Uh, and others. <laughs> and uh, especially others, yes. Right. We're actually better at seeing it than yeah. others. Um, and uh, at any rate, uh, you know, we thought, but the guy who wrote The Rational Animal with me is Vlad Griskevicius, who's now the chair of the uh, Department of uh, Marketing at the University of Minnesota. And he was trained in economics originally. And when, when an evolutionary person looks at decision-making, we make the presumption that, yes, certainly people are going to be biased. We know p human beings have lots of biases. But if, on the average, we were just a pile of biases, and they were all just kind of dumb, we wouldn't be here to talk about it. Our ancestors would have just you know, killed themselves. They would have starved to death. They would have made a million d dumb decisions. They d must have done something right, because it's hard to survive. You know, it's hard to figure out, you know, how to find mates and how to get along with people, how to not get killed. Human beings are dangerous animals, right? And our ancestors were the descendants of the ones who made it and, you know, made it in kind of a big way. Could we have done that if we were just a bunch of stupid decision biases? Probably not. You know, underneath that, we would, an evolutionist would make the assumption that there's got to be something going on. And so we talk about this notion of what we call deep rationality. Underneath the biases, we would expect to see that there are some, there's some sense to these kinds of things. That some of the, so here, here's a good example of a, um, of a decision bias that the behavioral economists uncovered. It's called loss aversion. To an economist, $100 is $100. And you're thinking coolly about it. It doesn't matter whether it's coming or going. Its value is $100. But to a psychologist, to a cognitive psychologist like Kahneman and Tversky, they discovered that, well, uh, it really does matter whether it's coming or going. If it's coming, it feels good. Right. If it's going, though, it feels twice as bad as it felt good coming in. So if I lose, if $100 is missing from my wallet, I really feel like crap. Okay? If I find someone else's $100, I feel good, but it's only, it only takes me about half as far from my normal neutral state as that crash that I get when I've lost something. And so people will make all kinds of decisions that 
that you know, one of the things that behavioral economists like to show is ways in which people you know, are kind of silly about not wanting to lose things. So you're standing in line at a movie theater and you, you have to choose one of these two possible people who you'd rather be. The person, you get to the end of the line. I was going to give you the wrong example first, but I'll start. Right. You get to the end of the line and you're told, you're the millionth customer at our movie. Uh, you're going to win a prize of uh, $100, okay? Um, or would you rather be person B? He gets to the line right after the millionth. The person in front of him is the millionth customer, and he wins $1,000. And then they say to you, well, you're the million and first, so as a consolation prize, we're going to give you $150. Okay, which would you rather be? Well, it turns out that most students who read that would rather be number one. They don't want to feel the disappointment of, oh, darn, I almost won $1,000, okay? And that's linked to this notion of loss aversion. But an economist would say, stupid, $150. It boils down to this decision. Take the psychology out of it. But you can't take the psychology out of it, okay? Humans do have biases. We would think there's probably some adaptive sense to that bias. Why do we have loss aversion? Well, our ancestors were floating along on the margin a lot of the time. And so you lose one squirrel it might have meant one of your kids starves. Okay, you right. get two extra squirrels, that's good, but if you've had enough to feed your family to begin with, the extra doesn't make as much of a difference as the one less, okay? The loss could be death. And right. so we're really, we don't like the cliff of falling below sufficiency, okay? So that's, that's one possible adaptive explanation of why loss is especially salient. But from an evolutionary perspective, we would guess that well, evolutionary psychologists like to think about how the mind is, is a set of different biases that we turn on and off depending upon context. And so, so I'll tell you about loss aversion again in a second, but let me give you the yeah. broad, you may remember this, but we talked about the fact that one of the presumptions of evolutionary psychology is that we don't just have one mind. There isn't just either one smart banker inside of our head or one irrational Salvatore Dali dumb decision maker inside of our head. I'm really hoping we'll talk a lot about this, actually. Okay. So, yeah, uh, go all right. on. <laughs> so we assume that there are modules that basically for different decisions, you use different kinds of biases, okay? When you're making decisions about your family members, about how much you should share or how much you should lose, it's different than when you're making decisions about strangers in the marketplace. When you're, making, when you're a young guy and you're interested in wooing a female, that's a different decision then what's the bargain I'm going to get you to? How much should she pay for her share of the dinner ticket is not the question. That's a totally different kind of a question about the economics. And so what we presume is that it, we have a sort of metaphor for this, that there are sub-selves inside of our head, that we have uh, my lab. I think you talked to Steve Newberg uh, yesterday. Yep. But uh, in, in our lab, we talk about this notion of, of uh, fundamental motives. And we assume that for each of these, so fundamental motives are fundamental social things that our ancestors had to accomplish. They had to find friends. If you were rejected when you were a hominid, you were going to die, okay? You didn't want to be thrown out of the group, okay? So they had to get along, okay? So affiliation is very important, and rejection is very painful. We're here because our ancestors were at least nice enough to not get cast off onto an ice floe, okay? <laughs> um, then it's nice to have some status, okay? It's also nice to protect yourself. Well, it's important to protect yourself from the bad guys. 
It turns out that the, you know, the notion that Americans are incredibly homicidal, we are compared to modern Europeans, but compared to anybody throughout history, including like traditional hunter-gatherers, homicide rates were really much, much higher throughout history. People were killing each other. They were, people were starving, and they were going out and killing the guys down the river when things got really tough. So our, our right, a lot of people seem to be making arguments that this is actually the safest time in, in history. Yes, Where, whereas if, if, I mean, for the common person to be watching the news, it seems mm -hmm. like every, every day the world's going to end in some new way. Exactly. Well, I mean, the news is got, it's one of those cognitive problems because right. it makes salience. We love to hear about the dangerous stuff, and so they give it to us. Right. Okay? I mean, I like to think of the media as sort of like, you know, the mental version of Ben and Jerry's, you know. Our brains are designed to want sweet, sugary, high-fat things. Ben and Jerry's gives it to us in living technicolor, okay? Right, um, right. <laughs> well, it's like, it, you know, in our minds, the, the idea of the news or, or how the news is attempting to present itself is this is some unbiased information mm -hmm. about life. This is important stuff that you, if you want to know what's going on in life today, watch this right. and, we'll, and we'll show you. And, and then the other side of it is a lot of people think that um, the news is, is some big conspiracy that's, that's out there to, uh, to figure out a narrative and then brainwash us into exactly, using right. this narrative, whereas what, what more likely is happening is kind of what you're explaining is that, that they're just more or less tapping into instincts yes. that we already have and kind of giving us what we want. Exactly. More they're giving less. the people what they want. Yeah. You know, just like Ben and Jerry's gives us the taste we want. They give us, we're interested in, was somebody killed? We want to know about that. Our ancestors would have wanted to know. Is there some dangerous guy around here? Is there a beautiful woman out there? I want to know where she is. Okay. Um, is there, you know, do I have somebody who might cheat me? I want so. We get the news gives that to us, and we pay attention to it. We don't want the boring news, we, you know, the guy. It's like, like, hey, today Shane got up off the couch and smiled at someone, <laughs> brushed you know? his teeth. Right, that happened today. Right. <laughs> well, who yes. cares? But if Shane stuck a gun in somebody's ribs and stole their wallet, now I want to know about that. Right. Okay. Um, and so. That's what the news is giving us in some sense. It's, it's just giving us what our minds want, which is information about the bad guys, about you know, the attractive potential mates, the, uh, you know, the friendly versus unfriendly people. And you know, you know who's what's got status. What's funny about that, and, and not, sorry to cut you off, but I would right. love to see something because um, I drive, well, I, I fly a lot too, but I end up doing long road trips sometimes. Uh -huh. And, and I, I mean, I think about this concept a lot when I'm driving around and looking at all of the billboards and uh -huh. watching how the billboards change by region, you uh -huh. know, depending on where you are on the country, they're giving you this truth that is kind of in, you know, that uh -huh. the, the popular truth of that area is. And mm -hmm. so it's interesting to see how different geographical regions are catering their advertisements and their information to Again, just what people are already people into, want. what yes. people want. Right. They're giving us what we want. You know, the ads are about, you know, the ads on the Phoenix Freeway are about alcohol. You know, they're about, they're interesting. They're about alcohol and they're about lawyers who will protect you from DUIs <laughs> <laughs> while you're driving, right? Yeah, That's yeah. the information you're getting. Uh, right. In any event, though, so we want to, our minds are designed to want to, you know, get information about affiliation about status and about where we stand relative to these things and then 
protecting ourselves from the bad guys, you know, uh, my finding mates and then keeping mates, that's a very different problem as some of us learn throughout life that, you know, you can do one well and not, and not so well at the other one. Um, and then caring for offspring. And so what we argue is that, there's that, that, that as a minimum, our mind has a set of modules that separately deals with each of those problems. Again, what we're calling subselves, you know, an affiliation subself, a status subself. And those subselves, instead of being one banker in the head, there's seven or eight different decision makers who have a different, there's a different thing they're interested in getting. There's a different goal they're interested in achieving. And what counts as a win is very different when you're in your parenting mode than when you're in your mate acquisition mode. And it's very different when you're in your affiliation mode than when you're in your caring for your children mode. Okay, so uh, one of the studies that I, uh, like I said, it's been a few years since mm -hmm. I read the book, but one that always pops into my mind, and um, I, I'm sure I've told other people about and everything mm -hmm. that I really enjoyed was was the um, the ad um, the the description of the restaurant. Right. And, and priming uh, people for, uh, I believe you call it the night watchman? Um, or, uh, yes. So, the right. Yes. And, uh, uh, and, or priming people for mating. Exactly. Um, I remember the study of, uh, Good. Uh, enough, but if you want to uh, present Yeah, so it. that was one where we, so I did that with Bob Cialdini, who's a big social influence researcher and, you know, does, uh, you know, gives talks on marketing to big corporations and so forth. And Vlad Griskevich has also worked on this and Noah Goldstein, who's at UCLA and he's in the business department. And so these are guys that are all interested in questions about marketing. And Cialdini's work, very well known. You run to somebody on a plane and you mention his name. If they're in business, there's a good, there's like, he's sold over two million copies of this book on influence. And business people want to know this. And the book has in it a, a series of heuristics, rules of thumb you might want to use. Mm -hmm. Be likable, okay? Uh, and different ways that, that people, he's in, Bob's interested in how people exploit those. How like, you know, religions and, you know, cults and business people, shady business people like Bernie Madoff, how they exploit our normal tendencies to, you know, if I know you and like you, I'm going to trust you. So right. they try to get us to feel like we're their friends. Okay? I mean, uh, it, to various degrees, a lot of times we're all doing this in one way or sure. another. Like yeah. I, I, as a comedian, I have to go up in front of a crowd of people and manipulate them into right. liking me and laughing at things that I know, I know darn well, some of the people might, it might not be their cup of tea or uh -huh. what, and I have to find ways to coax them into yes. being into the things that I want them to be in. You should read Cialdini's book if you have it. You, What's you, the you name like of it? it? It's called Influence. Okay. You can find it in any bookstore. It's very, it's uh, Robert Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I. All right. Anyway, he was a he, he's a retired professor here, and he was my original professor. Anyway, so uh, people in the business world know these things. Uh, you know, they know that you know one trick is to try to get people to like you. Another one is to get them to think you're an authority. You know, another trick is to you know get them to think this is popular. Okay, and so when Cialdini gives his talks, he talks about these different heuristics and how they're used and how they get exploited. Okay, how you can get tricked into. So here, here's a, a very it's, it's a harmless one, but um, if you're a waiter or a waitress, when you show up at work, you want to salt the tip jar, which means you want to put some money in there. You don't want people to look at an empty tip jar because then they'll think, well, the norm is not to tip. So when you get at work, 
you put some money in there. That's basically sending a message to the next to the first customer you're going to get is that it's appropriate to tip, and the and people have been tipping. Okay, and it's a little bit of a con because you're putting money in there that isn't really tips to start it out, which is why it's called salting it, right? Uh, but people do that at a much higher and nastier level. Okay, they kind of try to trick you. In New York, they they uh, sometimes leave long lines outside discotheques. Right. Uh, and don't let people in because they want them to think it's, there's a crowd in here, kids. <laughs> and yeah. then when they get to the end of the line, they realize the place is half empty. All right. Uh, but, but the trick gets other people to stand in line because you want to go to a popular nightclub, not to. You don't want to go to You don't want an easy. You want a quick run into a restaurant, but not a quick run into a discotheque, right? I uh, mean, as a, as a comedian, I can, I can give the exact same show, the exact same performance to um, a quarter of the crowd mm. or, or to a, a packed house. And people, uh, they uh, when, when they leave, when they're leaving, their amount of enjoyment, how excited they were about it is very much exactly. so dependent on mm-hmm. how many other people <laughs> were it's in the, the same, room. Same for college professors. Right? It's <laughs> yeah. Like, if the, if the house isn't packed, we don't get as good a laugh, okay? And we can tell, and the students are falling asleep, okay? So I sometimes, if the room is half empty, I'll ask them to come down yeah. into the front rows and, and avoid the last five or six rows. Right. That way you got more, there's a kind of a Yeah, comedians do that. Clubs will intentionally set, well, clubs that know what they're doing uh-huh. will, will intentionally sit the front first. And yes. if you let people sit wherever they want. They'll sprinkle they'll, out like yeah, molecules. Yeah, right? exactly. You don't want that. No. So at any rate, so back to the, to, the, to the study you were talking about. There are these heuristics, okay? If you want to sell a restaurant or a product, you can either say it's popular or there's a totally different heuristic, which is it's scarce, okay? Everyone is, this is, people have been buying this up and it's very rare, it's hard to find. Well, in some sense, those are two opposite different messages, okay? Everybody's doing it is different from this is very, you know, this is only for the chosen few, only right. a small number of elite people can get into this restaurant, and it's out of the way. No one knows about it. So do those both work? Well, what we found is that it depends upon which of these sort of sub-selves is activated. When you're in your kind of what I guess we call in that book the night watchman sub-self. Well, so, so the study itself, you, you would have these two. So one restaurant would be described as this is the, the popular, mm-hmm. it's almost like a tourist trap or so. This, right. is, this is where everyone goes Everybody if they're goes stopping through, through this yes. town. And then the, uh, the other restaurant is here's a cute little hidden away uh, hole in the wall that's uh, – it, it, so that's how you present yes, it only as Only for being the chosen few. It's a, yeah, like – uh, and so it turns out that um, it depends upon which of those works depends upon which of your sub-cells is activated. When you're in a mating frame of mind... And how, do you, how are you priming oh, that? How do you prime that? It's a good question. I'll tell you what, what happens to a subject when they come into the laboratory in a study like this. You show up and you, uh, in some of these studies, I forget how we did it in that study, we would show a, a short film clip. So we'd show a, a film clip. There was, there was a movie called Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead, which actually was a, a kind of, a, that, that's a, the, a non, a, not a good descriptor of what the movie's about. It's about this, the, this couple, very attractive woman and a very attractive man. They meet, the guy's kind of Italian, smooth, well-dressed, and you know, the woman is this gorgeous, you know, young woman who looks like a supermodel. And they flirt, they go to dinner, and they end up, you know, with this romantic kiss at the door. When the students watch this, it's like, mm, you know, they imagine themselves being whatever, you know, whichever, you know, uh, sex they are in that scene. Right. And, uh, 
it gets them romantically and a little sexually aroused, okay? Or we show them a scene from Silence of the Lambs. We show them the, you know, basically a little bit of clips for about eight minutes that capture what the story was, and then it ends in the dark basement when this serial killer is about to reach his, his uh, hand onto the throat of the FBI agent uh, who was, is a woman, uh, and it's in a dark basement, and he's got night goggles on. Very creepy. So you either put in a scared frame of mind or a romantic frame of mind. Now, you're shown these advertisements. Do they work on you? Do you want to eat at this restaurant or you know, buy this product? It turns out that if you're in a romantic frame of mind, you want the scarce thing. You want it, the tucked away, the place where you know, very few people go. It's elite, okay? Yeah, uh, I want to take a lady someplace special that she exactly. hasn't been to before, yes. a lot of people haven't heard of. Yeah, you don't want to take, a, take her to the, the big, most popular restaurant in town. The Cheesecake a thousand, Factory. The Cheesecake or Factory yeah. or something, right? No, that's not where to go, right? You want to go to a place that's, that's out of the way, the little Italian, the choice Italian restaurant. On the other hand, when you're feeling frightened, you want the Cheesecake Factory. Okay, you want to go to a place where there's a lot of people, where it's popular. You don't want the little tucked out of the way place that hardly anybody's in. Now, we think this is because, we've done some other research that supports this notion. It sort of makes, think of our ancestors. There are times when you want to fit in with the crowd, and there are times when you want to be off by yourself. When the bad guys are up on the hill with their spears getting ready to attack your village, that's not the time you want to be unique. That's yeah. not the time you want to stand out. Right. Know? We did some other research on conformity and find the same thing. People conform more when they're frightened. They go along with the group's judgments on you know, which is the more attractive painting or whatever uh, when they're frightened. On the other hand, when they're in a romantic frame of mind, right? Uh, they want to be, they want to stand out. Right. Especially guys, actually. In the conformity research, we found that, that guys want to sort of be unique. They want to stand out as that individual when they're in a romantic frame of mind. They want to say, look at me, I've got better peacock feathers than these other guys. You know? uh, and in fact, we have a lot of research that goes along those lines that shows that romantic frame of mind does different things to men and women. A fear frame of mind makes both men and women more conforming, more agreeable, more nice to everybody. They want to get along. They want to fit in with the group. A, uh, a mating frame of mind, it makes men want to show off. It makes them want to be independent. It makes them want to uh, show off their creativity. There's a sort of stereotype that men, when they get sexually aroused, their brain turns off. That turns out to be bullcrap. Men actually get smarter. We've actually done some studies where we ask people to come up with a creative answer. We show them a painting, or we tell them to tell a joke. Okay, they they have they we show them a cap uh, a cartoon with no caption. Write a caption for this. Guys write better captions when they're in a romantic frame of mind. It's like. The guy's mind is like, all right, now I'm going to show off. I got a good brain here. <laughs> I mean, I know just from e even even if consciously mm -hmm. I'm not like, oh, all right, I'm going to try to get some tonight or something. Like, mm -hmm. even, even if I'm just, you know, I'm just greeting people at the door afterwards. Mm -hmm. I'm not consciously after anything else other than just I want to show people I'm grateful. Say hi. Yeah, thanks for right. coming out. Right. Um, and, and some, you know, some people will be coming up and they want to get into a conversation. And sometimes this is kind of like, Oh, oh this is a lot of work or girl. Yes. They want to, 
uh, tell me racist jokes or something like uh, that, and I got to pretend like I'm happy to hear them. And then, uh, but then an attractive girl will come by, and all of a sudden, uh, zip, zam, I'm, I'm on, I'm cranking yeah, out right. jokes, I'm charming and clever, exactly. and yes. everything. whereas other times, I, I might even be trying to be like, okay, say something smart right now. It'd be interesting, and, and like, I just can't bring it, mm-hmm. you know, talking. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that is interesting. Yeah, no, it is a, it's not unique to you. It's like guys, when there's attractive, when there's romance in, in the air, guys want to turn it on. They want to, and they, in fact, they use, we use our brains more effective. At least we're creative. We're creative. The other thing then. Well, there, there should be more, um, maybe there should be more female bosses, like attractive female bosses. Maybe, maybe guys will work harder. They'll put a lot more mental effort into getting a task done that's, and be that's creative. That's a good suggestion. I mean, we've thought about this, that if you want, if you're, if you're in the sort of creative end of the business, okay, if you're wanting to, if you're in the advertising business, say like the mad men kind of a thing, and if you're in the creative part, you want beautiful women around, probably. You know, even you know, you want attractive members of both. It's good to probably have guys that look like that guy in Mad Men. I'm forgetting his name. You know, ah, uh, yeah, I'm Don forgetting Draper. his name too. Yeah, um, and then the beautiful women, because it's possibly turning both of the sexes into. You know, although women actually don't show off their creativity as much for short term. If if women are thinking about long term mating, then they get creative. Men get creative whenever they think of any kind of mating. You know, we're, we think of beautiful women or, you know, women we might be involved with. We get creative. Women only get creative, more creative than usual. Women actually start off a little more creative than we, <laughs> than we do. Right. But we amp it up uh, in a mating frame of mind. Women only amp it up if it's a long-term mating thing they're thinking about. So women, so if you think of short-term mating, that's the peacock situation. That's when there's low parental investment, the males are not going to hang around, you know. It's like a one-night stand situation. Then the women are saying, "All right, show me your stuff." Yeah, okay. they, I mean, <laughs> if if it's just going to be a one-night stand, uh, exactly. a woman's really in the driver's seat and you gets have her good pick genes. of the litter. You better have good genes. You better be smart. You better have it all. In fact, there's some research that David Buss has done that suggests that women want it all, and that's especially true for short-term relationships. You know, right. short-term relationship, women don't need it. They're like, okay, if you know, if the guy is incredibly handsome, okay, if he looks like, you know, um, Liam Hemsley, okay, uh, or his brother, okay, right. uh, the guy who played Thor, I forget, Chris, uh, yeah, if, yeah. If, they, if he looks like that, and he's smart, um, and he's charming, and he's nice, then maybe he'll do okay. You know, the rest of normal guys, they might as well not go to, you know, singles clubs most of the time, okay, because right. you gotta have it all, all right? Um, Unless maybe you're in New York. Um, and uh, again, this is, you know, this is subject matter we've, we've kind of covered on the podcast, but the, uh, the minimal uh, parental investment uh, idea, this is... It, so in this situation, uh, let, let's say two people meet at Mardi Gras or nightclub or whatever, they, they meet, they're going to have a one-night stand, they're never going to see one another again. Well, if the woman becomes pregnant, uh, she's going to have to, she might not even know the guy's name, she's going to have exactly. to care for this. If, if the guy impregnates, he might not even ever know, and he's off with, right. with his buddies at a frat house having fart contests or whatever meanwhile he's but he's a evolutionary success story exactly. like his, right. his genes are still going on and and being cared for by someone else so it's no energy yes. off of him so. so guys can do it i mean i like to you know use the metaphor of if you're going out to eat 
okay? And you're going to go eat, if you're going to eat tonight up in Scottsdale at a fancy restaurant where it's going to cost $100 a person, you'll read the reviews first. You'll check it out. Okay, you're going to invest a little bit of money here. You're not going to just eat any place for your 100 bucks. On the other hand, if you're going to go, if you're hungry for lunch and you're going to spend 5 or $8 on a Mexican food, you know, you're not going to read the reviews. You're just going to go, you know, into the first Mexican restaurant you see. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, I think the, the, uh, the analogy that I sometimes use is that, that uh, for women, there's no cheap Mexican restaurant, okay? It's always a fancy restaurant in <laughs> right. Scottsdale, and you, they're always reading the reviews, okay? For men, if it's a one-night stand, it's like the option to eat quick in a Mexican restaurant. Okay. I'm starving here. Yeah, right, what the hell? There's, a, there's, a, there's an available possibility. Fine, I'm not going to check. I'm not going to read the reviews. Um, in fact, right. we did a study. We did a, uh, maybe one of my better-known studies about 20 years ago was on this kind of what we call the qualified parental. People used to, used to assume, well, males are going around and they'll sleep with anything and women will, you know, are always selective. Well, that depends upon whether you're talking about a long-term relationship or a short-term relationship. In a short-term relationship, you'd expect the women to be selective and the men to be less selective. But in a long-term relationship, which is what a lot of humans uh, end up in, where, where the products probably most often of long-term relationships, there's not as many short-term opportunities. But if they're, if they're in a long-term frame of mind, then men and women are both being selective. Right. It's, it's like the, uh, in, the, in the animal There's case. a whole lot more involved if you're spending the rest exactly. of your life with this yes, person right. from a male point of view. Exactly. Now I'm investing. Now I'm paying. So now I'm going to read the reviews. And guys do. Before they get married, they're very careful. They read the reviews. They check the woman out. They see exactly what she's like. Uh, and this is, this is probably no new thing, and this is why women have this um, in, in this, um, uh -huh. this sub-self to be primed, where it's, the creativity isn't necessarily being primed yes, for one Yes, the women are in a mating frame of mind. In a short-term mating frame of mind, the women are not showing off. I was going to give you a, another finding we had. So we asked people, uh, you're going to go on a, on a date with someone, or you're going to marry this person, or you're going to have sex with this person, and... What's the minimum criteria you would have for intelligence, okay? And what we find is that when people are going to go on a single date, they want at least average. College students want at least an average person. It doesn't matter whether it's a man or a woman. they got the same criteria. When you're going to marry the person, they both want about the 63rd or 64th. They want someone who's a, a, a standard deviation above average before they'll consider marrying. That's the minimum they want is someone who's you know, clearly smarter right. than average to marry them. But what's interesting is when we ask about a sexual partner, well, women want a smarter than average guy for a sexual partner. Their standards go up compared to a single date. But men do something very funny. Men's standards drop down to like the 35th percentile. Men are willing <laughs> to have sex with a woman who isn't intelligent enough to meet their standards for a date, you know, which only happens in LA, I guess. You know, <laughs> right. like, um, the guys were saying, if I have an opportunity, like that, then my standards will actually drop from my normal, you know, mating standards just to go on a right. date. Right. I'm going to see if I can find that graph to put on the here we are podcast.com oh, okay. website because that's a fun graph to look at. Yes, right. I've seen it before. 
Yeah, no, it's, it always get, it gets a laugh, yeah, actually, of course. Um, whenever I show it to students or it talks. Um, and, and the idea of being, I mean, for, for a woman, like we've kind of covered, you, you want it all if you're taking on this. If all you're getting is genes out of this guy, uh -huh. then he, they better, better be darn good genes. Good genes. Exactly, right. Um, whereas, you know, if it's just a date, there's no real, you know, let's wait and see. Maybe he's smarter mm -hmm. than he first appears or, or who knows, mm -hmm. or maybe he's got other qualities. Right. It's just a date. So mm -hmm. what's yes. the harm in that? Yeah. So, it's, you know, it's fun. We actually did another study. We said it's, it's not only... You're not having sex with the person. It, we, we asked about a sexual relationship first, then later we asked about a one-night stand. You'll never see the person again. No one will ever know about it. Didn't change women. They still wanted a better-than-average guy, even if no one's going to know and they'll never see the guy again. It's the same game for them. There's the potential loss. For guys, if it's a definite one-night stand, you'll never see her again. The standards go even further down. You know, now it's like, you know, can't she tie her shoes? Well, <laughs> you know, that's not really I, necessary. Yeah, <laughs> I can tie her uh, shoes uh, or... Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, all right. So what were the, because I wrote down six here, and so I must be missing some of the subcells. Can you go through the subcells again? It's affiliation, status, um, like well, Night Watchmen self or protection. Survival. Well, self-protection self -protection is, is if we've got self-protection. Okay. We have um, affiliation. We have status. Uh, we have mate acquisition, mate retention and parental care so that's six that's six but sometimes we talk about uh, disease avoidance separate from oh, self-protection right yeah yeah okay so disease avoidance is down there at the bottom that's another sort of a thing where thinking about disease is different than thinking about getting jumped on you know by the bad guys so my colleague um, member of my research team mark Schaller, he's at the university of british columbia and he has done some research that shows that for example like Prejudice. Maybe Steve talked to you about some of this stuff, but prejudice. Steve didn't. Um, I think we talked briefly with uh, Marlene Zook, um, okay. who she wrote a book, Riddled with Life, um, okay. talking about parasites' relationship to how we evolved. But we just touched on this, so okay. go on. Uh, so Schaller's findings are this: when you're when you're made afraid, like if you put people in a really dark room, you turn out all the lights, you even turn the computer screen off and leave them in the dark. Then they get afraid of outgroup men. Okay, they get afraid of like Arabs, Arab men, not Arab women, uh, and they see danger in those guys. Okay, and they see it in African American. These are Canadians, but you know, they're, they're even in African American guys, they see those guys as potentially more dangerous when they're in a dark room. So these are members. And this of is just going back to this is like, hey, this guy's from a different tribe. Different tribe. I don't know, know him. Exactly. Plus, it's a male, which inherently right. means more dangerous. And, and at night, we're at, we're at more risk because, in fact, there's um, the anthropologist at Harvard, who I'm forgetting his name, but um, he's done this. He's, he's studied chimpanzees and found that they. Um, you know, they'll only attack when they outnumber. If there's one chimpanzee from one tribe bumps into six, apparently humans do that in hunter-gatherer tribes as well. Like, if you run into a group of six guys from another tribe and you're alone, you better run. Okay? Right. Because they'll beat you up or kill you. Right. Okay. Uh, and uh, so fear leads us to be concerned about outgroup males. But then there's some other research where people think about disgusting things like germs. And what that does instead is it makes people feel an aversion towards people from strange, exotic places like 
you know, Ethiopia and Sri Lanka, where they've never been and don't know many people from them. And when you think about it, it's kind of, that's the threat that we brought here to North America. You come with a new, dis people come from an exotic place. They've got germs you don't have. And it doesn't matter whether they're men or women, uh, those germs could kill you. And so now... So if you're priming people with maybe showing them pictures of feces or vomit or something like that, so you're already thinking like, ooh, watch out, there's some parasites in this exactly. environment. Then they're prejudiced against exotic people right. from far, far away. And not, they're not so much concerned about whether it's a big, tough guy or a, you know, a slight woman or something like that. Now it's like foreign people uh, become the, the victims of prejudice or whatever, or the recipients of our prejudicial feelings. And it's a different kind of prejudice. It's not a prejudice like you know, a fighting feeling. It's a feeling of just wanting to avoid folks. I just want to stay away from people. Uh, of this. I actually have had this experience myself. I was uh, going to Vancouver and I had a baby in my arms uh, and uh, all these people are getting off a plane from Korea and uh, apparently the custom there must be to touch babies. And I'm like, <laughs> oh crap, there are all these people from Asia and they were touching my baby. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I thought it's not, you know, I had a very prejudicial reaction. It's like, yeah, foreigners, you know, like, yeah, you know take yeah. the baby away. Um, it's interesting how that can even, you can consciously be like a, a you yes, know, a, totally liberal on a, at a conscious level but you know underneath you have these uh, you know you have fears and concerns and they're ancestral you know um, and your brain's only able to pick up on so many cues for I mean you might uh, 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 Asian might be in your in-group in say a college or or whatever but you right. you you're, the brain has a difficult time telling who is in the out group and who is exactly, and a very good indicator of yes, that is right. skin color. And right. So. In fact, that is that is one of the nice things is that our brain can shift. You know, can realize if you see someone from another group and they've got your same accent, okay, and they seem like a member of your, they've got your, you know, fraternity shirt on. Yeah, or the sports like that, jersey. And they're us, and, you know, right. And they're us, okay. Um, but it's when someone with a, has a different accent and is coming from a faraway place, and you're worried about your baby, then you're then suddenly you're you're less open-minded. You know, in fact, Canadians tend to be very kind of nice and warm-hearted, and you know, blah blah blah. Um, but these are Canadian students at UBC who are, you know, at the kind of liberal end of the continuum. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them are Asians, in fact. But when they were th when they were thinking about disease, they wanted to limit the visas that were given to people from far away, exotic uh, places, right? Um, right. And uh, but not from places that they were familiar with, you know, like Scotland and you know, um, you know even countries that you might think of as potentially you know, foreign from our perspective, if they're familiar with them, that's okay. You know, Hong Kong was okay because there were lots of people in Vancouver from Hong Kong. Uh, but, you know, more, you know, Sri Lanka, which is equally far away, uh, was more scary, at, at least right. in terms of disease avoidance kinds of things. So again, that's another, so that's maybe the last one you were looking for there. Right. The disease yeah, avoidance. And um, so, so there's just all these various subs. Actually, just uh, because I want to kind of wrap up and put a bow on it, maybe uh -huh. with finishing talking about this. So, but quick before we do that, how about why don't you plug the charity of the week? Um, okay. Uh, what charity would you like to promote? The one thing I didn't tell you. Can, can I give you one more minute? Because I was leading. Oh, up you can. You can give me. Yeah. Let me give you one more minute because I was leading up to one thing which I didn't get to tell you yeah. about. The loss aversion stuff, I mentioned it earlier on. Okay. okay. Well, we'd expect that 
from, a, from the deep rationality perspective to go on and off depending upon which of these subcells is activated. And so here, fitting in with what I just described to you, when you put people in a fear state of mind, everybody becomes more loss-averse than usual. Mm. But when you put them in a mating frame of mind, do you want to guess what happens or do you remember? Uh, less uh, <laughs> loss-averse than... Well, only the men. The women, the women stay loss-averse when they're in a mating frame of mind, but the men suddenly stop worrying about loss. It's like this whole cognitive bias that the behavioral economists have uncovered. It disappears completely. They're much more concerned with gains than with losses. Right. Well, I mean, from, from a rational point of view, the idea of putting a big fancy lobster, uh, well, uh, standard old school rational economist view, you're going and buying a big fancy lobster dinner and putting on a credit card with a bunch of money you don't have, this seems completely irrational and silly. But if you look at things from a gene's point of view, mm-hmm. yeah, you might have to put a little interest on this. This might make life hard for you down the line a, a little bit, but you might also have an opportunity to pass your genes on right. tonight. This could lead to a million years of your genes exactly. being passed right. off for the, just for swiping this little bit of plastic. Yeah, so for men, in fact, you know, the men do. They become more risky. We also found that they throw money around more. They become more conspicuously consuming and so forth. So anyway, the, the final punchline on that. A charity that you asked me about, I'm going to I'll plug the uh, the Sierra Club. All right, um, out there, helping yeah. to preserve what's left of the environment. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty important. I I mean I I do a lot of um, especially this week. I've been doing a lot of podcasts that uh, I I think is going to have our listeners pretty concerned about the environment and environmental issues, which is a good thing. So um, go and check out the Sierra Club. Again, you can go to the herewearepodcast.com website um, to, uh, to find the link there or just look it up on your own. Um, and also, Doug, I'd love to have you on again sometime. I think we have a lot more right. uh, we could talk about. I mean, just in closing, I mean, one of the things when I said um, that the rational animal kind of got me thinking in, in new ways, I think one of the, the big takeaways for me, and I knew this on like a small level, but your book just made it so clear and really made it stand out was this idea of, of uh, like, you go, okay, who am I? You know, you want to, mm-hmm. you want to find yourself who uh, I'm this person, Shane, you know, okay, what does that mean? Who is this person? And we, we kind of intuitively think that, that that person is this stable person that that is all the time okay i know who i am or or doug i want to know about you i know who you are mm-hmm. um but that's really not the reality of what's going right. on there's more than one of there's more than one <laughs> you inside there <laughs> and they're all coming out in different ways at mm-hmm. different times um uh, depending on the environment i think that's incredibly important and so fascinating please Go and get both of Doug Kenrick's books, Rational Animal and Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life. I'll put some links on the site for those as well. Thank you for your time, Doug, and thanks for the wonderful conversation. Great. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you so much for all of you who have taken the time to rate and review both this podcast and my new album, My Big Break. 
Um, right now, it's been uh, about less than 1% of you have, have gone to do that on iTunes. If 100% of everyone listening to this right now took two minutes to uh, go and rate and review both of those on iTunes, um, it would make my album and podcast the most popular podcast and album out right now um and that would change my life um i know that's asking a bit much to think that every single one of you is going to but um every single one of you that does do that makes a big difference and i'm trying to release bonus episodes and everything else to um uh to give you guys incentive to do that and uh, but you know if you want this a podcast to keep going growing and and getting better i have some really amazing guests lined up for this summer that's uh, i mean absolutely incredible and so so yeah please go and help me out next week on the program uh, i stop through um the moat aquarium in sarasota florida to talk with um senior marine biologist Kim Bezos-Hull. We talk about dolphins and spotted eagle rays and uh, a little bit of shark talk as well. Uh, even even uh, a little bit about uh, whale penises. So that's a lot of fun. So please make sure and tune in to that one. And I'll talk to you guys next week. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior. Happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. 
Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my God.